Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Breaking into the media or film industry is notoriously difficult. It's highly competitive, and the skills needed are sometimes difficult to come by. An Atlanta nonprofit, Kids Video Connection, aims to help by giving young children a head start learning those specific skills, by teaching local youth video production and media literacy. Their annual Children's Film Festival starts tomorrow, and we'll hear more about their film screenings and workshops later this hour from Alicia Johnson the co-founder and CEO of Kids Video Connection. First, a grown-up filmmaker working with a stellar cast. The Courier is a new film, a spy thriller, Based on a true story, an unsung hero in 20th century British history, Greville Wynne, Benedict Cumberbatch plays the title role with a superb cast directed by Dominic Cook. The director joins us now via Zoom. Dominic Cook, welcome to City Lights. Thanks so much for having me. Why is the story of Greville Wynne relatively unknown? It's a really interesting question. At the time, it was a really major news story, especially in the UK. And I think there were various reasons why it sort of fell away. And one of them was that Greville Wynne was a salesman. He was a guy who was selling factory equipment to the Eastern Bloc. And so the uh, CIA and MI, MI6 had a uh, contact, a, a very high-powered contact in the USSR who wanted to sort of get information out, military information out. And they'd had some disasters with operatives, so they wanted a civilian, so they chose him. And what happened was, once the whole mission was finished and he came back, he 
he'd lost all his business, a lot of his business. He sort of started to present himself as a bit of a sort of semi-celebrity, wrote some books and started talking a lot about the missions that he'd been on or the mission, this one mission actually. He made quite a lot of stuff up, but MI6 essentially got very fed up with this and said to him, if you don't shut up, we're going to take away the pension that we <laughs> agreed to give you. And so he sort of did shut up and they, because they weren't best pleased with him, they didn't push the story anymore. And it sort of fell out of the public realm and he sort of went back to a, a sort of quiet civilian life. And I think that's got a lot to do with why it all sort of disappeared because Brits of a certain age know who he was, i.e. those people who were sort of adults at the time. And anyone younger than that really has no idea who he was. Well, the film brings out how perfectly ordinary Wynne appeared, which is what made him an ideal recruit for MI6 and the CIA. What drew you to this script? Well, I sort of, I mean, initially it was just a very instinctive response to the quality of the writing and storytelling. I had no idea about this story, but I... I think there's this sort of warmth to the writing. And I said to Tom O'Connor many times, who wrote the script, that this story couldn't really be written by a Brit. Mm. I'm talking sort of dreadful stereotypes. But but I think the fact it's written by an American, it sort of gives it a warmth and a sort of emotional heart that is often, I think, missing from spy dramas. And I think that's the thing that really appealed to me because the film is a lot about sort of friendship, loyalty, and in a way, the cost of espionage for those people involved. And, there's a sort of heroic element to that. When you look at what people who have been involved in, in these kinds of missions, you know, how they had to sort of lie to their families, the sacrifices they made to their sort of intimate lives were immense. And I've never seen a film that really got into that at a very human level. And I, I really appreciated that. I have a wife and a child. Either of you have a family? Oh, no. Don't suppose you could tell me about that? Not a lot you can tell me about, is there, Helen? James. I can tell you we both put ourselves in harm's way when necessary, and this is terribly necessary, Gribble. Then might I suggest you find someone who's suited for it? I think for me, I always want to be sort of moved. I know you directed Benedict Cumberbatch in a production of Richard III. Mm -hmm. Would you describe working with him and his approach to taking on the role? Yeah, he's, I mean, I've worked with him. Yeah, I've worked with him on Richard III, but I also did some theatre with him back, back in the day. And I sort of watched him grow as a sort of in stature, but also in skill over the years. And he's very thorough in his preparation. But I think what I love most about him is that he is actually an incredibly intuitive actor and he responds very much in the moment to what is in front of him. So in terms of film, that's brilliant because you pick up all the sort of choices that happen in the moment and he trusts them and he sort of just goes with his gut. And it's very exciting to be around because you never quite know what you're going to get. And I mean that in a good sense. I mean, you could interpret that sort of behaviour as being, and in some instances, I think it is sort of unpredictable in an unhelpful way, but he's always sort of working within the framework of the scene and exploring what it has to offer moment to moment. And that is so great for a director because he's giving you options and it allows you to have something to respond to. So that's the sort of, for me, the thing that gives him such an edge. 
what you've said reveals a great deal about your process as a director, which sounds very collaborative and appreciative of an actor's input. I know some directors would not relinquish control in that way, but you think a performance and ultimately a film is better for it. Is that correct? I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, it's a director's responsibility to set up a sort of framework for the choices that the actor makes, to give them as much freedom as they need to do their work well, but also to sort of guide them and give them some sort of, if you like, goalposts to sort of land in. And I think that's what I like to do. I like to give actors structure. I mean, I think if you're doing certain types of movie, if you're doing a a very sort of visually specific sort of effect, sort of sci-fi special effects type thing, precision in certain way areas is really, really important. Sometimes I sort of ask for that precision if it's necessary. But I just basically believe you sort of go further when you're collaborating, when you're sort of working organically together with another person. You're sort of more than the sum of your parts. So I, I try and allow that to happen as much as I can. Please talk about the role of Oleg Penkovsky and the actor who plays him. He is marvellous. Oh, well, I'm glad you liked him. I mean, I'm a huge fan of his. His name is Mirab Ninidza, and he's from Georgia in the Caucasus. I'd seen him in a TV series called McMafia, where he's playing a sort of villainous, you know, the baddie of the whole thing. And he was magnificent, I thought. I'd, I'd never seen him before. Uh, he was magnificent. And we went off to Russia, to Moscow, to meet with Russian-speaking actors, because there are some roles that we just sort of needed Russian-speaking actors for, and one of them was Penkovsky. And um, we saw some absolutely incredible talents over there. And initially, when we met Mirab, we saw him for another role. We saw him for the KGB guy, but he was so great that we asked him to come back. And I mean, he's just a joy to work with. You know, he's super experienced. He's done everything, but has is pretty unknown in the West, although his English is actually really, really good. And um, so he was uh, really fantastic to work with, really thorough. He's got a great sense of humour. He sort of not only gave a lot on screen, and the character is, again, another complex guy. He was a war hero, Penkovsky, so, and he had a huge ego. But he also had a sense of sort of trying to do the right thing. And I mean, he was motivated in sort of taking secrets out of the USSR by both altruistic reasons and selfish reasons. On one hand, you know, he was trying to prevent a nuclear war. And as many know, the Cuban Missile Crisis is as close as we've ever come to nuclear war as a, as, as a planet. But he also was very angry with the Soviet system because they thwarted him and they'd actually killed his father, who was a, a white Russian, who was a czarist. So it needed an actor of quite a sort of extensive range to cover all of that. And Mirab was that. And he was also a sort of very benign and positive presence on set because he looked after the Russian actors who came on board and sort of made sure that they were in the right place. And, and that sort of just helped the process hugely. So yeah, I mean, I'd love to work with him again. He's really remarkable. What if I get caught? You won't. You don't know that. They'd execute me, correct? Not if they thought you're just a courier, that you took packages but didn't know what was in them. They would hold you to trade for one of theirs. How long? A couple of years. Oh, just a couple of years, rotting in some Russian gulag. They will not catch us. The KGB will have no idea. Listen, I'm better at this than they are. Fine, but I'm not. I think that what's evident early on is these two men 
the characters of Greville Wynne and Oleg Penkovsky genuinely like one another. And on one level, it's a beautiful story of friendship. Would you speak about that aspect? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And again, that was very clear in the first draft that I read of the script. And it's actually true. I think everything I've done, everything I've researched and sort of read around this story confirmed that there was a very strong bond between these two men. And I think it was partly intensified by the fact that everything they were doing, they were sort of doing in secret and you know, even their wives didn't know what was going on. So their bond was sort of strengthened by that. But I think they were actually, in some ways, they were hugely different because, as you said earlier, Greville Wynn was sort of actually a very ordinary guy. Although when you get close to anyone, they're never ordinary. <laughs> Once you look at their lives, no one is ever any, ever really ordinary, but, mm. but relatively. And Penkovsky was a war hero. He'd been decorated 13 times. He was instrumental in keeping the Nazis out of Kiev, which was very strategic place. He was quite, well, very well connected actually in Russian society. He'd sort of married the daughter of a general and military people are very, very significant in, or they still are actually, but they were very significant in the Soviet system. So on one level, one guy was this sort of real hero by anyone's standards. The other was this sort of average Joe kind of guy. But actually they were both quite similar in that I think they sort of both felt thwarted by the societies that they lived in. Yeah. They sort of recognised that in each other. And they both liked to drink. You know, they were both sort of bon viveurs. They liked women, they liked drink, et cetera, et cetera. So there were these sort of aspects of their personalities that were quite similar, quite linked. And they, you know, they really, they really did connect. And um, and when, you know, made huge sacrifices to try and help and save Penkovsky later on. Penkovsky asks Greville Wynn, can you hold your alcohol and Gwyn replies, it's my one true gift. I think <laughs> I love that part. I also loved the scenes where each of the men take the other to experience their idea of culture. <laughs> the first night, Greville Wynn is taken to see the Bolshoi, and Penkovsky brings him to this production of Cinderella. I couldn't help but feel like that fairy tale ballet in the beginning bode well. I mean, sort of set the idea of a happy ending. And a later ballet they attend is Swan Lake, which impresses upon them, at least one sees from their expressions. This may not have a happy ending. Then Greville Wind decides if he got to see the Bolshoi, he should take the Russian delegation to the West End. And you did a fantastic job with recreating shows that were popular. Then you see a marquee for The Sound of Music, and they do the twist popular dances. Was that fun for you? It sure seemed like fun for everyone on screen. Yeah, it was great fun. Yeah. And, and you know, there were ways in which we tried to sort of subtly link 
their worlds using color and so on. And, and, and this was one of those moments where we really wanted to show the difference. You know, that high culture in the Soviet Union was where it was at and foreign dignitaries that they were very sort of important were taken to the Bolshoi Ballet. And it was at that point, especially in the early 60s, sort of unlike anything on earth. And, and when they when the Bolshoi came to the UK, I don't know, they must have come to the States too, actually, at that time. But when they came to the UK in the early 60s, it was a sort of sensation because no one had ever seen anything like it. The sort of discipline of the dancers and so on was sort of in a world of its own. Yeah, and of course, in London, you've got the very first stages of what we think of as the 60s, you know? I mean, in 61, 62, the 60s were not the 60s we think of as the 60s. It was still pretty sort of guarded and Edwardian in many, many ways. But yeah, you've got the beginnings of that sort of flourishing of nightlife and so on, and more hedonistic element of the 60s culture. Yeah, no, we had a great, we had great fun, except I have to say that there was a bit of a mix up on the day we did the twist scene and we had to end up getting people from the office, the production office to dress up in 60s outfits because we didn't have enough people. Oh my goodness. And so there was that one of those sort of last minute things sort of begging people to be in the scene. But it was, no, it was really good fun to do. And actually a lot of it was sort of improvised and Benedict is the most brilliant improviser. I mean, he always comes up with crazy stuff in the moment. He comes up with brilliant lines and all sorts of things. So it was fun to shoot. Yeah, it was great fun. Dominic Cook, director of the new film, The Courier, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. We'll be back with more of our conversation after a short break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Courier is a new Cold War spy thriller based on the true story of Greville Wynne, an unlikely hero played by Benedict Cumberbatch. Let's return to more of my interview with the film's director, Dominic Cook. All of the actors are outstanding. Rachel Brosnahan is very well known to American audiences, largely from her work in TV. Would you talk about her character? I read that it was really a composite 
Yeah, that's correct. There's a composite of actually three people in that character. There were two CIA handlers, quite senior, who were both guys, who were the real people who did that job. We decided to make a female character. There's a very, very important woman in this story who we couldn't sort of tell her story because we just didn't have the screen time. And she was a British woman called Janet Chisholm who was married to a a diplomat living in Moscow. And when Wynne wasn't going in, she would meet with Penkovsky and smuggle stuff into the British embassy so it could leave sort of in diplomatic bags and come back to Britain. So she was a very important sort of another sort of hero. So we want to sort of honour the fact there was this woman playing this really important role in the story. And there were women in the CIA at this point, but any woman in a workplace in the early 60s and I'm told by my female friends and colleagues that this still operates now, that in order to get anything done, the woman would have to sort of pretend to be less smart than she was and make the guys think that they'd had all the ideas. And that was sort of written into the script. And it was really interesting because it's another sort of form of subterfuge, if you like, within the story, because the story is all about sort of people pretending to be other things. So it sort of added to that. And I'd seen the first few episodes of Mrs. Maisel and thought that I just fell in love with Rachel immediately, sort of thinking she was so bright. We went out to her and she was really taken with the script, particularly that sort of element of the character sort of playing this strategy in order to get her way and having to be very sophisticated. And uh, yeah, she was again a pleasure to work with. It was Penkovsky's idea. You're perfect. You're a civilian, so the KGB won't be watching. You'll be in and out of Moscow anyway to set up contracts. You still won't know any specifics. It'll just be a career. Just a career for Russian secrets. I can't believe you're bloody serious. We've gone over it with Penkovsky. We believe the risk to you is minimal and we'll pay you. Did you see her in House of Cards in the American version? I did, yeah. She was brilliant in that. Oh, yeah. I thought she yeah. was stunning. And yeah. I think that was my introduction to her. And it was it was a tragic role, a very heavy role she mm. took on. So her versatility is in full view with the transition to Mrs. Maisel. And in this role, I see what you mean about having to hold back and let the men thinking they are really making the decisions, but not without asserting herself a little bit. Oh, that's right. The other thing that was going on at the time, which again is borne out by the research I did, is that there was this interesting sort of sort of rivalry between the CIA and MI6, which is all to do with the history of the two countries. And so CIA, obviously the US is hugely expanding its international influence at this point, has been doing so for, for several decades. And the UK, you know, there was this sort of snobbery that the UK had the best networks internationally, incredible sense of sort of superiority. So there's a sort of game going on between the CIA and MI6, where actually CIA are sort of calling the shots really for most of the, of the mission, but are making, <laughs> are having to sort of appear to be respectful so that MI6 felt that they were having all the sort of key decisions. And, and again, so, you know, there's a sort of duality with all of that. And, and she was brilliant at sort of playing that deference whilst absolutely having a sense of where she wanted them to go and leading them there without them even realising that she was leading them there. When the work of the career begins. Top secret military documents being smuggled out of the USSR. The tone shifts 
And I think that's when we see Greville Wynne's character transform in particular. Dominic, I have to tell you, it brought to mind Schindler's List. Does that seem odd to you? Well, I'm extremely flattered because it's an absolute masterpiece. But no, I'm interested to know why. Was that well, sort of tonal seriousness of it? or Well, certainly some of that. But I guess having read Thomas Keneally's book mm-hmm. and then seen Spielberg's film, I was struck by how an ordinary person can become heroic. That in some ways, maybe the greatest heroes come to that by accident, or at least unwittingly, and then they rise to mm-hmm. this summit of heroism. And really, as portrayed in The Courier, that's what Benedict Cumberbatch's portrayal and Greville Wynne's character conveyed to me. Well, that's really beautiful. Yeah, I get that parallel. And uh, I'm very flattered by the parallel, but I get it. And I think I think it's absolutely right. I think we don't. None of us know what we have within us until we're sort of tested. And there are these people who have potential within them to put others first in a really meaningful way, and put themselves on the line at the same time. And I'm sort of fascinated by the idea of sort of hidden potential because I think so many of us do have these sort of things within us that, if the opportunity arose, would sort of appear. And uh, yeah, Greville is like that, absolutely. Once you sort of got a grip on what was happening and grew in confidence, he did something that gave his life meaning. And I think for me, the end of the film, whilst there's a huge amount of sadness in it and a sort of fragility in him, I sort of hope to get that across, that he starts the film sort of in this sort of cynical mode of midlife crisis. Is it all worth it? What's the point? I mean, he's got a lot to be thankful for on one level. He's a comfortable man. He's got a, a son and a, a marriage and, you know, lots of things that are in a business that's going well, that sort of thing. But uh, there's a sort of emptiness. It's a slight meaninglessness to his life. And then by the end of it, he certainly paid a big price, but he's really done something that will make anyone proud to achieve. And I think I think that that is an important part of the film. Another important part of the film, and I have to say an essential part of the tone and action for me was the music. It's fantastic. I looked up the composer, Abel Korsanyavsky, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, he's brilliant. Oh, yeah. It, it, it sounds like Prokofiev, right, yeah. but it's not derivative. And did you engage him? Yeah, I did, and uh, I'm really glad I did. I mean, I listened to a lot of composers, and um, we hadn't worked together before. But I sort of wanted... Uh, Prokofiev was, was, was really present in my thinking, because actually... The one area of sort of culture that the Soviets allowed to flourish was classical music. I mean, a lot of the writers uh, had were dissidents and had to smuggle their writing out. The theatre wasn't, there was a lot of good theatre directors, but in terms of playwrights, there was very little at the time. But there were some amazing sort of uh, classical pieces of music at that time. And, um, and Prokofiev really captures that Russian Cold War feeling.
so it was I was quite keen because I'm a big Hitchcock fan and I watched a lot of the sort of early 60s Hitchcock movies and oh. I love those sort of Bernard Herrmann scores where they really go for it I mean <laughs> the opening cues on those films like that you know the title sequence of North by Northwest it's sort of like announcing that something really major is about to happen and people don't really do that anymore but he had that and i think again you know, he's a polish guy and he doesn't have the reserve that some sort of western composers have he sort of really puts his heart into everything he does and i really wanted that feeling for the film and yeah he was brilliant i mean it was a it was a tricky process because we were on you know he was in los angeles i was in london and we didn't really get together apart from the very beginning and to record the music so it's hard to work like that when you're that far away but he delivered so brilliantly i think in the end oh i wouldn't be surprised if that wins an oscar after it's just sensational i think it's concert hall quality He's a very fine composer. He really is. Yeah. And I loved, well, I loved reading credits. And I saw that two really good orchestras. Yeah, uh, right. The City of Prague Philharmonic and the Symphony of Varsovia. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, of course, we shot a lot of it in Prague, so it was really nice to go back. And we recorded most of the classical stuff, because there is classical stuff in the score as well. We recorded that in Prague, and then we went to uh, Warsaw for a longer period to record Abel's stuff. They were brilliant. And it was sort of helpful because he he's Polish, so there's that direct communication, which when you're speaking through a translator, you sort of lose something. So it sort of really was thrilling to be there to watch them all work together. They were quite something. was the most valuable Soviet source ever recruited by the West. Mm -hmm. What do we know about the extent of the top secret military documents he made available to the US and the UK? Well, there were 5,000 of them. So it was still going, you know, the translation of those documents was still going on years after he'd uh, died. So it was a huge event for the West to get all this information. And it really, the reason why he was so significant was that there'd never been a Soviet spy at that level. You know, he really was right at the top of the system and he had access therefore to information that very few people had access to, given that it was such a sort of secretive and hierarchical system. 
there's a really um, great book called The Spy Who Saved the World, which is the most accurate book about Pankowski. And it was written, I think, in the 90s. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember the name of the writer, sadly. But it was based on the CIA records, which had been sort of released at that time. So there's a huge amount of information in there. The KGB records have not been ever made public, so we don't really know what their side of the story is. But it was sort of all manner of information regarding all aspects of the Soviet military operation, which was huge, of course. It was a huge part of the state. And he sort of gave the West a lot of information which allowed them to, not only in Cuba, uh, I mean, you know, this information was the information that got to that got to Kennedy and allowed Kennedy to make the decision he made to sort of close in on, on Khrushchev. But there was all sorts of information that affected strategy in the West for a very long time. It sort of led to the downfall of Khrushchev because it was such a, a huge embarrassment for the state that someone at that level could have given away that much information to the West. Am I overthinking it? Is there a possible dual meaning to, or dual application of the title. Was Pankowski as much of a courier as Greville Wynn? In some ways, yeah, in some ways he was. Absolutely he was, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about that title, because it wasn't the original title, but when it was suggested to me, I was really thrilled by it, because although it's quite sort of generic in one ways, it is nuanced in the context of the film. And it's sort of about... <laughs> it's about the sort of, on one level, the innocuous quality of being someone carrying information that you're not sort of parley to, but at the same time, you can never be neutral <laughs> if you're involved in that kind of uh, mission. Even if you don't, you're not reading the contents of the envelope, you know that you are <laughs> involved in something extremely, you're sort of knowingly playing a part. So, so there's sort of dualities, I think, in the title, but absolutely he was, yeah. The very first draft of the script was slightly more balanced between the two. The, the main work we did in the rewrites was sort of make it more Wynn's film. I mean, only marginally, but more about the sort of outside of the rookie going into this world. There were two lines that I know will remain with me a long time. One was when Pankowski says to the son of Greville Wynn, the little boy, the little boy asks him, is it true you all hate us? And Penkovsky says, our politicians hate your politicians. People like us, we don't hate each other. It was just so poignant. I mean, it was, it was beautiful. Yeah. And the other was when Penkovsky tells Greville Wynn, Maybe we're only two people, but this is how things change. Yeah. Is that the essence of this story for you? Yeah, very much, yeah. And that's why we repeated that line at the very end of the movie. It is. It is absolutely about that. And um, it's, it's, that's got a particular resonance now because there's so much sort of discussion around how we change things for the better in so many areas of our lives, in the West, our political lives and our sort of social lives, the way we live together. And um, I don't think we should underestimate what one or two people can do. It's a simple lesson, but it's a really important one, I think. Film director Dominic Cook, his new spy thriller, The Courier, stars Benedict Cumberbatch and Rachel Brosnahan. 
It was released on Blu-ray and DVD earlier this month, and it's also available on YouTube. For more information, visit our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Breaking into media or the film industry is notoriously difficult. It's a highly competitive field, and the skills needed are often hard to come by. Local nonprofit Kids Video Connection aims to help by giving young people a head start learning those specific skills. They specialize in teaching local youth video production and media literacy. Their annual Children's Film Festival starts tomorrow and features a mix of film screenings and workshops. Alicia Johnson is the co-founder and CEO of Kids Video Connection. She joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Well, congratulations on entering your 15th year of Kids Video Connection, Alicia. What originally inspired you to start the nonprofit? Many moons ago, when I was in my 20s, I had the opportunity to serve as assistant director for a Saturday school program at Providence Missionary Baptist Church. It was an inner city youth program. And at that time, I was working for Fulton County Government Station as a producer. And during that time, we were having our career month. That particular Saturday, I was talking to the children about my career, and I asked the children, how many of you like to watch TV and what's your favorite program? And all these little hands went up. <laughs> but this one little boy, both his hands went up, and he said, oh, Miss Johnson, Miss Johnson, I watch WWF every day. So I looked, WWF. His sister said, Miss Johnson, that's wrestling. He said, yeah, I oh. watch it every day. He said, they be putting people in headlocks and flipping them. And then a light bulb went off in my head. Now, this little boy was getting in trouble at school Aww. and in the Saturday school program because he was putting people in headlocks. And he was always <laughs> telling me, Miss Johnson, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. And I said, oh, my goodness, he's emulating those wrestlers. So I asked all the children, I said, what's your favorite program? And I went back home and I started watching these programs and these children were emulating these, their favorite characters. They were trying to walk like them, talk like them, and even fight like them. And I said, oh my goodness, this media is really affecting these children. So I started um, just doing more research and a few years later started Kids Video Connection with the help of some my husband and several of my friends that work in the media field. How has the technology you teach the kids changed over the years, 15 years in audio, online, video, digital? You know, that's a long time. Over the years, it has changed. But the key thing that we're teaching children is the video production process. So as they learn the video production process, the pre-production, production, post-production, production, they learn, we teach them media literacy concepts. And one of the key concepts is that all media messages are constructed and to influence you to think a certain way, to gain power or money. So we want the children to understand that you have to be very selective of the media messages that you listen to. 
because they affect your thoughts. And we always encourage the children in our workshops with this little poem, watch your thoughts because your thoughts become your words. Watch your words because your words become your actions. Watch your actions because your actions become your habits. And watch your habits because your habits become your character. And watch your character because that becomes your destiny. It all begins with a thought. Hmm. That's wonderful. Reaching underserved communities is part of your mission. How do you ensure all kids have the opportunity to become involved? Well, usually prior to COVID-19, we actually conducted free video production workshops at the DeKalb County Public Library. So we would offer one workshop a month and with um, funding from Georgia Council from the Arts and some of our other sponsors, we're able to offer those workshops. And during the summer, we actually have our annual children's film festival. So all of the workshops and the film screenings are free because we wanna expose and give children the opportunity to learn more about the film and media industry, especially here in Atlanta. And Atlanta is such an important center now for film and media production. The workshops you're offering for free are amazing opportunities for kids. I saw that the animation workshop is being taught by Alyssa Lewis. She's an Emmy award-winning animator. I'm just so excited. So many people in the film and media industry here in Atlanta, they've embraced us and helped us. This will be Miss Lewis. I think her fourth year working with us. She's done several workshops with us at the library. And our intro to filmmaking with Miss Fran first Tellinelli, and she's one of the first female directors here in Atlanta. So, and she was also um, one of the founders of the Atlanta Film Festival. So people have come out and embraced us and helped us. So we're really excited. And, and this year, we're gonna kick off the festival with the workshop with the Center for Puppetry Arts. So I'm really excited. This is our first year working with them. They have a wonderful puppeteer that will be teaching the children how to create their puppet. And then immediately after that workshop on the same day, we have Dr. Sue Lynn. She's an award-winning ventriloquist. She's gonna teach them how to um, maneuver their puppet and teach them some media literacy concepts. Can you go into the media literacy a bit more? You've said how important it is for you to steer kids in the right direction about the kind of media they consume. What other aspects beyond the poem, can you give us some examples of what's important to you that kids understand about media literacy? Media literacy is learning how to analyze, evaluate, understand, and even create your own form of media. So with media literacy, we especially with the film festival, we encourage the parents to co-view with the children. So when they sit down and they watch any form of media on TV or streaming, we ask the children, how does that program make you feel? What does it make you think about? Does it educate you? Does it inform you? Does it inspire you? So those are the questions we ask the children to for themselves about different facets of media. So they will learn how to select media that will inspire them and encourage them. And with the film festival, we want to promote positive, entertaining educational programs for children. Hmm. We were talking about 
the Emmy Award-winning animator Alyssa Lewis and her engagement with Kids Video Connection. On the topic of animation, one of the youth films you will showcase is the animated short Ellie from 11-year-old director Ella Reese. How did this young filmmaker get her start? She said that her parents gave her a little elephant and she just wanted to help learn more about elephants and share what she learned with other children. So we're excited to be able to showcase Ellie and several other young people films. We also, and I'm really excited about this. This is really, we have a six-year-old this year. Oh my. I think it's called Vampires Can Dance. He was just <laughs> so excited. He came up with the idea and he told his father about it. His father said, you know what? I just want to help him with his creativity. And that's what we want the children to realize. They all have a talent, a skill, a creativity. And our thing for this year is expand your imagination. And we just want children to have the opportunity to learn and grow and be creative. You also feature films by college-age students. There is an animated short by Alexis Wong, Bang of the Beast. And she created a wonderful animated piece where there's a little creature that is trying to find his place. And he goes to these different animals and they said, no, you're not like us. And he's searching, trying to find who am I? And the animation is so nice, but the story itself of him trying to find his identity really touched me personally. And I said, you really have to have this program in the festival. Mm -hmm. So that is an example from a college age student. How has Georgia's growing film industry helped kids video connection. We are excited that the film industry have embraced us because they realize that if we start teaching children when they're young and we could spark that interest, especially to children that may not have the opportunity to take a video production class. So I know one of our first teens in our first teen workshop, she mentioned to us, she said, oh, I had been looking for a workshop and I looked online and then she kept saying, I really want to learn more about video production. And she said she discovered the workshop online at the DeKalb County Public Library. The DeKalb County Public Library director, this was several years ago, I think probably in 2008, she reached out to us and she said her goal was to reach more teens. And she thought that this program would help them to reach that age group. And that young lady now, she is actually on our board now. She came back to volunteer. She went on to Georgia State and majored in broadcast journalism. And then she went to school in Texas and she has a master's in business communications. So she volunteers and helps us tremendously. So I'm just excited that we're able to reach people and help them to achieve some of their goals and dreams. Oh, that's fantastic. Alicia, this is the second year your festival has gone virtual. Is that correct? Yes, it is. What did you learn from last year that helped you put together this year's virtual program? We were able to reach people all around the world. So we wanted to give people the opportunity, like some of the filmmakers are in India. Um, one little um, girl that was in the festival before, I think she was in Australia. But this gives us an opportunity to showcase their film in their country, because normally in the past, we would have our film screenings at the library or at Emory University. And 
only the people in Atlanta could see the films, but this way we're able to reach people all over the world. And I'm just excited about that. Oh, yes, it has been an unexpected silver lining in the pandemic isolation we've experienced that arts organizations here locally now have global exposure. After these young people gain their skills from Kids Video Connection, how do you advise them to move forward into real-world careers? One thing we do, we advise students in reference to college. I know recently we had a young man that was in our online video production workshop. And his mother called me. She was just saying, well, he was planning on going to Kennesaw State. I said, they have a good program. But I said, you know what? Um, Georgia State has a wonderful program. And she said, well, Alicia, we don't have that much money. And I advised her that Georgia State, um, they have their two-year program. And she said, oh, that would be great because we could actually afford that. So when I talked to the young man last week, he said, oh, Ms. Johnson, I'm going to Georgia State now. So advising them on, on colleges, but also we um, partner with Reimagine Atlanta. They have a wonderful program for young people. They specialize really in teenagers and we'll encourage children to go on and learn more about video production and filmmaking, working with them when they finish our program. Alicia Johnson is the founder and CEO of Kids Video Connection. Their virtual children's film festival starts tomorrow and runs for two weeks. You can learn more about the offerings on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Carl Anthony, the host of Conversations About Jazz from the Hammonds House, looks at the fashions of jazz with two experts on the subject, an educator and a fashion designer. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would so love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. 
Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.